With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Well, I asked the question on the start of last week's show whether it would be City mistakes, refereeing errors or wonder goals that cost Pep Guardiola's team at Anfield. I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting it to be all three, but here we are. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast, where for the latest season, we're looking back over all the controversy that led to City leaving Liverpool with a defeat and a nine-point deficit to the top. The bigger picture is under question too. Liverpool will probably drop nine points over the course of the season, but will City be able to make up that ground? Also on the show, we'll be hearing from Kiki Masampa about his City career, while Paul Bias talks to us about the book he's co-authored about how Pep Guardiola turned his team into one of the greatest ever seen. I'm your host, David Mooney, and with me in the studio is City fan and blogger Richard Burns. Hello there, how are you David? I'm not so bad, thank you very much. And uh, we've got your dad with us, Tony. Greetings, pleased to be here. How are you doing? Not so bad, thank you. Okay, I'm going to start in very unorthodox fashion for the podcast. I'm, I'm we, we want to dissect the topics of the last game, so um, I'm going to flick straight to Law 12, fouls and misconduct in the, <laughs> uh, in the IFAB uh, law book. Uh, it's an offence, Richard, if a player... Gains possession or control of a ball after it's touched their hand or arm and then scores in the opponent's goal and create or creates a goal-scoring opportunity. It's not usually offensive if the ball strikes the hand or arm of a player directly from their own head or body of that of a player who is close by. If the hand or arm is close to the body and does not make the body unnaturally bigger. That in mind, should City have had any penalties at Anfield? Yes, they should. Um... The first one, because uh, I know it's going to come up. Um, so we all know that there was an incident where Trent Alexander-Arnold's hand made contact with the ball uh, before Liverpool scored their first goal, uh, about was it 20 seconds before. Um, and the argument that started coming back from Liverpool fans f- before you even get to whether that was by the laws of the game a handball or not was whether Bernardo had been uh, guilty of committing a handball before that that would have then made the rest null and void. It touched his hand. Uh, which is fantastic, of course, because it would have also made the Liverpool goal null and void because that would have been a set piece. But anyway, um, it, like, it it touched his hand, so fine. There has been this huge misinterpretation, I think, uh, of what the laws now state, as you've just read, about um, about handballs for an attacking player, where it states, if the player... Gains, sorry, you've read it out. I've not got yeah, it yeah. written. Things, but if if the attacking just rewind player, about thirty seconds and you'll get it in word for word. Yeah, yeah. Um, gains possession of the ball from um, from the hand from the hand, then that's a handball. Bernardo didn't gain possession of the ball, and the the next player to touch it was a Liverpool player. But then the caveat comes: if that's a handball by Alexander Arnold. That has created a goal-scoring chance, but the next, the next possession, the next touch was from a Liverpool player. So City haven't gained direct possession from but, it. But the touch from the hand has created a goal-scoring opportunity because it should have been a penalty. But he hasn't gained possession, which is what the law says, <laughs> and it also doesn't say that the team gained possession or the team uh, create a goal-scoring opportunity. It says. If a player gains possession having touched the ball with his hand, Bernardo didn't gain possession. The law is really, really clear. We've got into an issue of interpretation again. We rewind this further. This is why Jesus' goal against Spurs should have stood. I'm not going to reanalyse it, did it at the time. But that was touched by Laporte, who didn't gain possession. Laporte didn't score. Jesus did, hadn't touched it with his hand. Goal should have stood. So the this law, I think, has been wildly misapplied. And if this is the intent of it, that Bernardo's that, that City's goal against Spurs was right to be disallowed, that Bernardo should have been pulled up for a handball, that law needs rewriting quickly because at the moment it's not just 
down to interpretation. The law is actually written, I think, really, really clearly with little room for ambiguity and it is being misinterpreted to a point that it has created an ambiguity. Um, well, let's, I mean, one other aspect of this that we've not even touched on with that yet is that the incident where the ball flicks up onto Bernardo's hand, Tony, it's uh, it ricochets from what, half a metre away, 50 centimetres away? And the law says it's not usually an offence if the ball strikes the hand or arm of a player directly from their own head or body or that of a player who is close by. So surely that distance is just far too little for Bernardo's hand to actually matter in all of this. Yeah, for me, I'm just just going to step back slightly into what I would describe as old money or pre-VAR. <laughs> so, so pre-VAR, that's a decision that in the moment... I think, my personal view, is if the referee sees it hit the hand, he gives a penalty. If he doesn't seize it, it's not a penalty. And from a fan's perspective, you say it's one of those. You get it or you don't. So I think it's just one of those. However, we're not in old money. We're in the world of VAR. So watching the game, I can talk about from watching the game in the moment. I thought as soon as it went to VAR and as soon as it showed on the TV, so that not necessarily the same images that the VAR officials were getting but on the TV to me it looked like the hand was in a so-called unnatural position and I thought it was a handball so I I couldn't see I could not see how they would not give the VAR but you but, this, but this is where the protocol of VAR takes over because the the protocol <clears> now is that the referee describes what he's seen to the VAR who then say yeah, that's pretty much what's on the screen, or no, it's nothing like that. And if the answer is, yeah, that's pretty much what's on the screen, then the decision isn't overturned. So the truth is, actually, if he'd given a penalty for that, and then it was checked by VAR, he'd describe the incident and the the VAR wouldn't overturn it because it's pretty much what he's seen. If he's not given a a video for that, it can't be clear and obvious because he's seen it. Yeah. So so it it just, it It, it makes the idea of of referring that to VAR absolutely nonsense. Nonsensical, yeah. And and then, and and then as a, as a direct, I mean, you you had like a really strange thing happen as well. So not only was the the controversy of the penalty, no penalty, but directly from that incident, a matter of 20 seconds, I think Richard said it, it probably was 20 seconds later, the ball's in the back of the city net in probably what was Liverpool's, I think maybe the first attack of the game. And, and and if the one decision goes, if the penalty is ruled out, then that goal falls. So from a a fan's perspective, you had fans of each team, oddly enough, hanging on a VAR decision where somebody the, was going to feel wronged. Absolutely, it couldn't. And I think, I mean, we're not here to discuss everything about VAR, are we? But for me, what VAR at the moment is doing, it's taking away more than it's giving. So I'm absolutely in favour of the principle if you if you can make a decision right, that, that that has to be the right thing to do. But I'm not sure at the moment that that's actually happening. And I, I, my feelings as a match-going fan is that it's taken away more than it's given. Well, Richard, I want to come back to you now because I want to come back to that very point of creating a goal-scoring chance. Because the ball's hit Alexander-Arnold on the arm. Does that... That gains possession of the ball for Liverpool, who then keep possession yep. and score. But and let me like before we get into the the actual nitty gritty of it. And I know the Liverpool argument again to this is well, Gundogan had the ball in the box and he and he cleared it. The IFAB law says that a clearance it's not a new phase of play if that clearance doesn't go to a City player. So it's still the same phase of play. Yeah. Um, yeah well, yeah. Do you know what? I hadn't even I hadn't even thought of that. And if that point's been brought up over the week then I've missed it because I've <laughs> deliberately stayed away from reading too much about the game uh, which is pretty childish of me but anyway um, yeah no it's it's hard to dispute your point the only the only question th- becomes is is Trent Alexander-Arnold's handball too early in the move yeah that's and to be fair being if, if I was going to say shoe on the other foot but you know ball, ball on the other well, hand, hand. <laughs> if, if that was if that's City and there's a handball at the other end and Okay, I would accept if a penalty yeah. was given against us. But if 20 seconds later a goal was disallowed because of a handball that happened in their own box, I, I think you can reasonably say, because one of the tests seems to be, did a defence have time to reset itself? That came up um, That came up in one of the VAR games last season, I think, in the Cup. Um, 
I would think it unreasonable to it, disallow a goal because of a handball that far It doesn't back. matter if the defence has to reset itself. It depends on whether the clearance is controlled by a player of the team that's cleared it. Then it's a new phase but of then play. But then you... I see, so if, you, or if, it, if it goes out of play as well, then it's I, a new phase of play. I, I don't think in that case it's unreasonable. Because I, for me, and it, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, when, you, when you're talking about a game, uh, when you're talking about a game that you, you know, you're following the team personally, but trying to be objective about it, I think it's really difficult to separate that as being a separate period of play when it went directly from that moment into the move that swept forward for the goal 20 seconds later. So it's hard to... I mean, I, I get the point about saying you might you, you might feel... Um, it'd be un- unjustly disallowed, maybe from a some sort of football moral sense or something. But in terms of actually what happened, I can't really separate that from part of that same movement. But of course, the the reality. I mean, it's a slightly. Um, oh, I can't think of the word I want, but it's a it's a sl- it's a. Oh, it's an abstract argument yeah. because you wouldn't be talking about a disallowed goal. You'd be talking about an awarded penalty, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a decision to rule the goal out. Yeah. It would be a decision that that was a penalty. So it would be. It would. It would effectively. Shro- make... It's Schrodinger's handball, isn't it? It's... But no, it would. It would effectively make that phase of play after the handball null and void. It didn't happen. No longer existent. It didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. It was. It's a. It's a false phase of play sort of thing. Yeah. Um. So what about the second handball then? Why was that not a penalty? The Sterling... Sterling against, I think it was Alexander-Arnold again, wasn't it? That one I had much less of a problem with. So the first one, Alexander-Arnold, I think, has time and changes his, his body shape and it's a handball. Um, the second one, whilst I would still... I would still argue that it should... I would still fall on the side of it should be given, but I can see a lot more why it wouldn't be because it's from very, very close that it hits him. But the Champions League final last season. But there's different laws. It's applied differently in the Champions League, isn't it? And um, part of the reason that the law this season... So we've, we've got this law where we're supposed to believe that any handball in an attacking sense is handball and a goal will just be ruled out no matter how accidental it is. There is a reason that it hasn't... We've already covered why that's not necessarily true, but yeah. Yeah, but there's a reason that it hasn't been written in such a prescriptive way for defending, and it's because of the Champions League final last year. So actually, what is, in your case, an argument for that being a handball is actually the reason that the laws of the game don't count it as a handball, because it was ludicrous in the Champions League final. And if you start giving those as handball, you get into a point where players could legitimately just start kicking the ball at opponents in the box in the hope that it brushes the hand. So I wasn't so concerned with that one not being given. I think you can make a strong argument that it should have been, so I'm not, and I realise that's very fence-sitting. But if you ask me, again, applying the test of how would I feel in the, in the other box, I'd be a little bit aggrieved if that one was given against City, but I wouldn't be aggrieved if the first one was. Well, let's, uh, while we're still on VAR, Tony... Um... Why do you think there was no offside check on the on the second goal? Because we like, we we spent weeks the, the the day before we spent three and a half minutes checking whether a Sheffield United player was offside, well, and then it, this one was was given, and then you know there there it goes. Well, I, I can't answer that because I I can't I I've, I I don't understand the way that VAR is being applied because what it's not doing it seems to me is being applied consistently or the the. The, the decision-making isn't being applied consistently. So I've absolutely no idea because I thought that absolutely would be. But isn't it the case... I'm not... I'm not I'm, I'm genuinely, I don't know if he was yeah, offside but or not. I can't tell you. Aren't all goals checked, though? Isn't that the... Well, aren't goals checked by default? Yeah, but... So I get... I mean, I get... I take but, your point that obviously it wasn't investigated in the detail that other similar incidents have been. But simply because of the time it takes to draw the lines on, work out the centre of gravity and then work and Sky, out you know, Sky, the, the, the floor line and stuff like that. And I, Sky didn't put the lines up, which was very, very odd. It, and it, I'm sure... I don't know if Dad's heard, but... When they show the video, when they when they, when they they broadcast the video, they show what the VAR sees. Yeah, Sky... Sky well, Sky normally show the lines, don't yeah. they? And we didn't see that, which does... Um, it there was a conspiracy theory, wasn't there, doing the rounds where somebody seemed to, well, somebody claimed to have word that or to have knowledge that VAR wasn't working. I'm not. No, no, no. I know. I'm not keen to entertain the idea no, that VAR no, yeah, wasn't working because I'm not. I'm not trying to necessarily to entertain the idea, 
but is it not the most plausible explanation that you've heard for why there'd be a lack of consistency? I don't believe it, but it's the only thing I can see that would excuse them not doing it. That isn't to say I think it happened. I, th- I think I when, just... when you when you look this season at some of the um, some of the, the the absolute marginal calls that have gone too far, and the it's been you know well reported and documented and discussed and so on, it seems a bit odd to me that that one didn't. So I don't know. But that aside, it was a beautiful goal. Caught that. Yeah, I'll cut that out, don't worry. Um, (laughs) It was. Okay, Claudio Bravo. There was a brief moment, Tony, where Edison was fit. His shirt was there in the dressing room. And everybody went, oh, God, Pep Guardiola was playing mind games. And then he, he wasn't on the bus. Yeah, crashing I mean, back down to earth. I think in in the the game, the midweek game was it at Atalanta. Yeah, when Edison went off, I, I was actually watching that game. Um, we were watching that with, with Richard, and stupidly, and naively, and maybe at some sort of clutching at the, the 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 thinnest of thin straws, I said to Richard. It wouldn't be tactical, would it, from Pep? <laughs> of course, it was a stupid thing. Of course, you know? it's not. <laughs> but I was just, just hoping somehow. And then, um, so, so that even in advance of the game, the thought of going to Anfield without Edison um, wasn't great. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. The thought of going to Anfield with Edison wasn't great. No, either. no. Like... <laughs> any which way, it's it's that that game to me feels like how I used to feel about watching. City play Man United, that feeling of like you want to watch it and you don't want to watch yeah. it and, and all of that. And that's, we've now got that with the Liverpool game. Uh, so to go there with Claudio in goal um, wasn't wasn't uh, great. And whatever confidence he might have had um, must have been absolutely undone with the first and second goals, uh, which I think the first goal maybe could have done better, but uh, I don't know, it was a hell well, of a strike. It's a hell of a strike. The second goal was fabulous movement and so on. Um and I think after that, um, he was very much bravo. The Edison understudy trying to do some Edison-type <laughs> intricate work and leaving the viewers with the hearts in the mouth, let alone some of his defenders. Well, I, I, I wanted to, to kind of look at, at the goals just because, Richard, I, I think I've put my finger on the problem with him. And like it's not... A lot of fans are worried about what he does with his hands. I, I think it's I think it's what he does with his feet. I yeah. don't think he moves his feet enough. I know. I agree. I mean, it's it's really really hard, right? And I get um, I get really frustrated sometimes listening to pundits who aren't goalkeepers or haven't been goalkeepers analyze goalkeepers. I'm sure we all remember the ludicrous situation where um, was it Jagielka's wonder goal against Liverpool and Gary Neville absolutely buried Mignolet for not saving it when Jagielka's pinged a, a 90th minute volley into the top corner and, and and Gary Neville suddenly turns into the best goalkeeping analyst in the world and it buried Mignolet for that and it's I, I think we hear a lot of that and it's really frustrating and so I certainly don't want to add to that too much because it's such a unique position that if you haven't played it, it's hard to analyse. However, and I know the listeners won't know this because you hide it very well, but <laughs> you you have played the odd game as goalkeeper. Yeah, and weirdly, on and... Tuesday night this week, I actually <laughs> let one in in the bottom right corner where I didn't use my feet well enough. Yeah, and but it, it strikes me that when you've said that, that whenever I then watch the goals that Bravo concedes, when I watch them back... It's like really, really glaring. He never what he what he very rarely does. The, the shots that get past him, where he, where it looks like he's had a good go at it, but can't quite reach it. And then when you look at look at it back, it's not in the corner, and it's yeah. not quite. It's, it's still fairly it's close moved, to him. Yeah. He, he's not. He's leaping from a standing start. He's not taking a step into his yeah. leap. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, I mean, I can't disagree with that. It's, <laughs> it, it is what's happening. And so the first goal. I mean, to be fair, we've also got to say it's a hell of a strike. Yeah. It's a good strike, and and you, I don't think you can be overly critical of the fact that it's gone in, but you can certainly highlight what he could have done to give himself a better chance. What I would say as well, just to be on the goalkeeping situation, there's two things going on here. There is going to Anfield without Edison, which is hard because Edison's one of the best goalkeepers in the world and the perfect goalkeeper for City. And then there's going to Anfield with Claudio Bravo. Do you know what I mean? They are two separate things. It, it would have been hard with any second choice keeper because Edison is City's perfect keeper going there with a Bravo who has been proven over time to 
not be... To struggle and have been level. sent off in midweek. It's, it's, it's a nightmare scenario at that point. Do you think, think though, that in some respects, actually talking specifically about Bravo isn't really the nub of the issue? Well, the nub I mean, of the issue, I... isn't it really the sort of why is Bravo still oh. City's number two keeper? Well, when I we've mean... got Scott Carson with <laughs> Kyle Walker's there as well. <laughs> but I mean, Kyle Walker's needed for the, the defence because nobody else is fit <laughs> at the minute. Um, well, let's widen out a bit further as, as well in, in terms of defence because I, I said on Twitter we're not going to quite do Ask the Panel normally this week. I was going to say if you've got any Liverpool questions, get them in and then we'll do all the questions at the end. So uh, David Lamb on Twitter says, uh, have we missed Fernandinho in midfield more than we've missed Laporte in defence? Um... We well, I mean, we do miss Fernandinho in midfield because he's one of the best midfielders in the world. But then, would that have been? And this might open up a whole different conversation. But would that have been such a problem with a fit Rodri? So you would still have had if Rodri hadn't gone on to get injured. I think you still have Fernandinho in defence, and you'd be okay. In which case, it becomes missing a specialised central defensive midfielder rather than specifically missing Fernandinho. Um, because... Well, let's. I mean, let's look at the even wider issue then, Tony. Is is <laughs> is the problem that is the problem not that they're missing Fernandinho in midfield, or that they're missing Laporte at the back, or that they're missing Edison in goal? It's the fact that they're missing all three at the same time. Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think that is more the issue. Um, it's clear that once once Laporte was out, that that was not a disaster, but almost at disaster levels for us, given the, the, his influence on the team. So. That was always going to be a struggle. When you add to that, with Rodri, um, Fernandinho, um, Edison, and I would have to throw into that, John Stones. Is John Stones? Do you, I mean, I, I love John Stones. I, I want him to be great, but are you as confident watching him now as you want to be? And I, and I think the whole sort of City picture at the back, it's 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 no one thing. It's not Fernandinho playing in a different position. It's not just missing Laporte. It's we're absolutely bereft at the moment of anything that looks like consistency, consistency and decent. And and to go to Anfield with, you know, just to link it back to the the Bravo issue, that's one thing. But to go to Anfield with the players we've got in the sort of form and in the mishmash in front of Bravo, that's another thing it, as well. You know, it, well, it, I mean, I've I've got the numbers. Um, of course, I have. It's me. Um, 2016-17 City finished third on 78 points they conceded 39 goals over the course of the Premier League season that's 1.03 a game 17-18 uh, they finished first with 100 points uh, they conceded 27 times that's 0.71 a game uh, last season uh, they finished first 98 points 23 goals conceded that season so even better 0.61 a game already this season they're in fourth place They've conceded 13 goals in 12 games, 1.08. That's the worst record so far under Guardiola. Okay, the sample size is smaller. Mm. It will change over the course of the season and, and hopefully get mm -hmm. better. But it, it it points to the problem here. I mean, when you look at, at City's defence with or without Laporte, with Laporte, they concede you know, 0.6 a game. Without him, it's 0.9. It doesn't feel like a, a massive difference. But the number of games that he hasn't played yeah, is really yeah. small. It, it, and as well as, as, well as the... The stats are one thing, and, and that's fine, and, and they're horrible, so thanks for that. But, um, but as well as the stats, though, it's the feeling the feeling you get when you're watching the game. You are not watching it feeling as secure as in previous seasons. So irrespective of what the stats say, I mean, the stats just back that up, then if, if that's how you feel as someone watching the game, how do the other members of the team well, feel as well in terms of their own confidence about what they do at the back and play in that, that Guardiola way, if you like. You, now, if you if you choose Otamendi and you've got a fast player running at him, then you feel like he's going to dive in and either get himself a yellow or get beat and put the team massively on the back foot and leave a massive gaping hole in defence, don't you? And obviously the um, Adama Traore against him for Wolves is the ultimate example of that. But he's actually... is. I know he never completely got it out of his game, but he did improve that side massively for the uh, the 100-point season. But he was like a different player to, to what we'd seen previously. And he's massively regressed now to, I mean, this might be recency bias, but I'd say to a state where I think he's worse than he was at his worst before. Um, because it's like he's, he's completely lost what Guardiola brought to him. And whether that's lack of game time to, you know, sort of be consistent with it or lack of confidence, I don't know, but it's it's really noticeable. 
But I also think, um, and I will give credit here to uh, to Rob Wilson, a contrib- quite a regular contributor to this podcast this season. Um, I thought he made some quite astute points on Twitter, uh, either during or after the game, where he was sort of suggesting that people, of course, the defence is a bit of a disaster. But if you look at it in isolation, you're not telling the full story. We've, it's actually the midfield as a whole unit at the moment, doesn't really look right. And I think he's right. If you look at what De Bruyne has contributed in the last few games, considering how well he started the season, he's nowhere near his best. We've got Bernardo, who looks... um, And we know what he's had hanging over him, so maybe that's affected things. And God knows of of any player that might be tired after last season's exploits, Bernardo's got reason to be tired. Um, But he's looked a bit sort of flat-footed and one-paced and a bit short of ideas. And so... You wonder, given that sort of Guardiola's best form of defence is his team having the ball and putting it in the net at the other end, and that isn't a flippant comment, that is how Guardiola views defence. You keep the ball as far away from your goal as you can. We're not doing that because the possession play isn't quite what it is. And we can look fabulous going forward, but it isn't quite right. Let's get into that because Paul Brock on Twitter asks, uh, the stats were worse than that against Southampton. Three on target from 15. Does City need more composure in front of goal? Perhaps they'd have got more despite the VAR nonsense. But it's not just in front of goal. It's that middle point, isn't it? It's the creativity. Because we can reel off these these stats about how many shots we're having per game. But are they chances? Really? How many of them are chances? And of course you can point to, you can say we had chances against Liverpool because there was the John Stones header. Yeah, there were yeah. two where Aguero seemed to pull back when any other game is tapping them in for fun. But 15 shots isn't 15 chances, is it? Because in that is Kyle Walker. I know, sorry, that, I think you said that was a Southampton they, they could, game. There could be a number of wild shots, couldn't there? Yeah, yeah we, we seem to be getting frustrated quicker as well. And how many of them... The Southampton game was ludicrous for the ball coming back to Gundogan. And, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I'd say three, four, maybe five shots he tried from outside of the box before we just started rolling it out wide again. Shots aren't the same as chances. And so, actually, what you need to break that down further is what's our chance creation to last season? Because otherwise, you can't hang the strikers out to dry by saying... Do we need to be more clinical if the shots if aren't uh, chances? Uh, yeah. we're, not laying it on, we're not laying it across the six-yard box with the same mm. precision that we were last year. Bigger picture, Tony. Is the, I, uh, is the title out of reach now? No. It, it's not out of reach. Is it likely to be um, achievable? It, it's a big ask. Um, nine, nine points is difficult for a team that's lost, is it one in the last 51, where they're dropping points in the next 26 um, but last December, I think, was it three draws at home? Something like that, Liverpool. I think I think it's really difficult. I think it's difficult if City are at the best. We're not at our best. You know, we've not we've not mentioned the, the thinking that played Angelino at Anfield at weekend. Um, no, it's not out of reach, but um, I'm not expecting us to win it. Just very quickly, and just to plug, because this is going to be a blog that comes up on the podcast <laughs> in the in the coming days or coming Patreon.com forward slash Blue Room Podcast. <laughs> um, I've written about this this week. Um, it's not completely done because, of course, it's not. We had a similar points gap last season, but City fans have this habit, and I understand it, but this habit of saying we've come back from here before, we've not. It is harder with this many games to go because we've already lost three games and Liverpool don't lose. Liverpool have lost one Premier League game in 50 or 51 now and it was against City and we have now lost one of those chances to land that blow. So we are hoping for three defeats and recent history shows us only one team beats them in the league and it's City. So we are now only responsible for three points. We either need them to lose three games or or draw nine neither of those things have happened in the last 51 and nine sorry not nine six six sorry i'm not i'm not a mathematician but that also assumes if they drop nine points assumes that city win 26 it isn't going to happen so the point swing required is huge and i think it is beyond optimism at this stage, to think that City will uh, still win the league. I'm going to save that just in case. I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I desperately can hope I just I'm say wrong. as well, what, two other things, three three quick things. One, um, it's it's difficult because of everything that Richard said. And also, this Liverpool team, they are a fantastic team. They're, they're, they're a stronger team than last year. There are a couple of other teams that are more of a threat to us this year than in previous seasons. Chelsea and Leicester. 
um, are going to be tricky games. Um, and also, the City team itself, we simply are not functioning in the way that we were in previous seasons. So, no, it's not over. Is it likely? No. Quick word on Guardiola before we move on. Um, was he lucky to escape a little bit of a charge for those thank yous at the end? I've never heard of anybody being <laughs> charged with politeness, David. A ludicrous, a ludicrous question. Fair enough. And um, thank you very, very much for asking. <laughs> um, right, well, on last week's show, we heard from the former City winger Kiki Masampa as he explained his experiences of dealing with racism in football and gave his thoughts on how we can move forward in combating the problem. This week, we're going to hear the second part of that interview as he talks about his time at Eastlands, beginning with how the move came about in 2005. I know that it was an uh, ambitious club trying to achieve more to establish themselves as, as an club of reference in, in the Premier League and um, I knew that they were very ambitious so um, I knew that it was in Manchester and it was a big club a big stadium with a lot of supporters so um, at that time things went very very fast because it was in January when the interest was there I had to be quick thinking fast and take a decision straight away so um was not a lot of time to hesitate, but there was one thing I knew for sure, is that I wanted always to experience the Premiership. And um, with Man City came around, um, there was no need for me to think too much about it because it was a great opportunity for me. It was Kevin Keegan that that brought you to City. What 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 was he like? What did he say to you to uh, to, to convince you to make the move? He obviously uh, told me that, that he has confidence in me. He saw me playing and he liked the way I played. He told me the things that I like and the things that he liked about me and, and what he wanted from me and if I was uh, interested in it. And, well, you know, if somebody like Kevin Keegan tell you such things, uh, it's a great compliment for a player and for me as well. So uh, there was no, no need to think too much about it. What was, what was he like as a manager? Well, um, I really uh, enjoyed him. He was a man who was really straight. He was uh, honest to his players. And what I really like about it, he was making contact with the team. He was contacting with, with, with every player. He, he had the time for them. And um, he was so calm with the group. And that was something that, that I really liked because it makes you feel comfortable as a player and it gives you... Uh, that 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 peace and that calmness, he can really transfer it to the to the player to the group. What's it like having to? I mean, you, you were I think it was five games or so before uh, Stuart Pearce became the manager. What what's it like having a change of manager so quickly into a time at a new club? Change of manager is always a complex thing because every manager has his own way of seeing football. So every manager will demand something different from you. And they all have their own philosophy about how to attack, how to defend. So you straight know that some things are going to change and uh, maybe some players also are going to change. And So there's always a change. And when there's a change, it always takes time for you to adapt to that change. For me, it was already a change to come to England. So it didn't really matter, the change of, of coach, because I had to adapt to the way of playing, the, the way of training and the whole football life in England. So I didn't notice a lot. Was the intensity of the Premier League different? You'd come, you'd come from Atletico Madrid, so it, it was the Spanish league. Was there, was there anything, what was different about the Premier League? Well, um, the, the, the tempo, the intensity was, uh, was different. In England, I noticed that um, it was more about the intensity and the hard work. And tactically, we wouldn't spend too much time or effort on it. And the players technically in Spain were all, were all good. And in, in, in England, it was a bit different. I, the big difference was obviously the intensity and the hard work that you had to put in. Now, Stuart Pearce, um, he, got, he got the team kind of winning towards the end of the season. They went on this great run towards uh, towards the end of the season. Uh, what what did he do that was that was a little bit different to Kevin Keegan? Um I think he um he put more more edge in it, more more drive in it. He we were very engaged in, 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 in the game. And I think his, his his good point is that he uh 
you really can get the team and the players to give their 120% when they get out on the pitch. And I think that was a great thing from him. City at the time hadn't long been at uh, at their new stadium at Eastlands. Uh, what did you think of it when you when you got there, and and kind of how does it compare to now? It's a, it's a much different place now. The stadium, I don't know if it's much much different. I think it's just the upper part that they changed. That they made it a bit bigger. Um, the stadium and the the entourage and the atmosphere was was great. I mean. The, the 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 crowd is so close to the pitch and so enthusiastic. This is really what you what we always used to see about the Premier League. This crazy crowd that is so enthusiastic, and it was wonderful to uh, to to play in that stadium. And I've been there uh, last season, and yeah, it's a bit bigger, but um, the same characters, the atmosphere, and the enthusiastic crowd. Is still out there, so um, yeah, it, it was great to be back. Now let's uh, let's talk about uh, that first goal against Liverpool. Um, what do you, what do you remember of it? Everything, <laughs> everything. I mean, uh, it, it it was a great game. Obviously, playing Liverpool at home, you know the tension, especially because it is Liverpool and Manchester. So it is a big team, always been. So we were playing very well that game and. Um, we were going no no up. We had a couple of chances, and before that, I uh, I hit a post with with a volley, and uh, we were a bit unlucky in that. But during the game, we had a sensation that hey, we can really get the three points here because we were playing very well and we didn't give too much chances away. So just before the end, uh, we break out on the right hand side, um, really Croft and Deco going to the first post. So. I'm going with them, but then I hold back and I stay on the board of the uh, 16 meters yard. And Lee Cross saw me and he crossed it over and I, I kind of take it uh, controlled with the inside of the foot in the in the bottom corner. And, uh, and there was the explosion. Yeah. I was going to say in the last minute as well. Yeah, in the last minute as well, and that, that that's more like a boy's dream. That's what you dream of to to score in the last minute of volley. And I gotta say, that's one of the goals of memories that will always stay with me. But it was, I mean, it wasn't the only uh, decent volley you scored. I, I seem to remember one at Villa Park as well. Yes, I remember that one as well uh, at Villa Park with uh, with the outside of the foot and uh, with with a nice crawl. So uh, yeah, that's true. I. Uh, I enjoyed that one as well, but the one at home against Liverpool in the last minute is a uh, is a different thing. So uh, yeah, I had a good time. Now we talked uh, a little bit before about the um, uh, the run that City went on towards the end of that season, uh, and it was it, it was so close to getting into Europe with that with that final game against Middlesbrough. What was the squad? Yeah. What was the squad feeling before that game against Middlesbrough? Was the, the, the I mean the confidence must have been very high. Oh, definitely. Uh, the confidence was high. We were doing very well. And I, I think that game we were just a bit unlucky, actually, because the way um, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, for example, scored that free kick, I mean, he wouldn't do that two times, you know? The way he hit it and the way it goes under the bar, it's just a bit unlucky from our side. But uh, even though we, we didn't make it, I think it was a great run. And uh, that's why you saw that, hey... This team has a lot of potential. How much did you know about the the plan to send David James up front if uh, if, the, if City needed a goal towards the end? Oh, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. I think it was something between uh, the coach and uh, James. I was uh, surprised about it, but uh, I mean, when you when you need that goal, you you try everything, and obviously David James with his presence, with his height. With his physics, somebody who can uh, surprise you, and I think it was a, a logical thing to do, actually. And uh, I mean, you, we talked about the the confidence and the good feeling around uh, around City at that time. Was that I mean, was that part of your reason that you decided to to come back on loan the next season? Uh, well, the reason uh, was obviously that I, I felt very good at City. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. I have to say the club, the club was wonderful. The club was wonderful. The treatment and the way they arrange everything. Uh, 
I felt immediately very comfortable and I just loved it to uh, to play there. So I was uh, very happy that uh, they wanted me on loan again. And in terms of, of kind of your City career, how did how did the move to Trabzonspor come around? Was, was that something that was, was beyond your power to, to maybe have stayed for a third season at City? Yeah, it was beyond my uh, my power. Uh, I would have loved to stay and Atletico uh, Madrid uh, called me back because there was a new coach coming and he wanted to see everybody. And uh, well, that was a bit um, the way it went. So when I came back and then at the end, the new coach still decided that uh, he made his squad and he, he showed the players that he didn't need for that moment. So... Uh, that I was free to move if I wanted to move. But then, um, yeah, City obviously uh, went on and continued their way. So City was not an option anymore. And, uh, I mean, a lot of City fans listening to this will uh, will have fond memories of your time at City. What are you up to these days? What uh, what, what are you up to? I've been uh, coaching in the youth academy from Ajax and Almera City, which is a club that collaborates with Ajax in the second division in Holland. Um, I've ended with the under-19 from Almere City uh, two years ago. So uh, now I finished my pro license and I'm looking to um, to get some experience as a assistant coach so um, I can develop myself to become a head coach one day. <laughs> For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Kiki Masampa talking us through his city career there. Now, uh, just before we move on to uh, the next part of the show, we've uh, got a, a few news items to get out of the way for this week. Uh, first off, uh, Bernardo Silva's been given a one-match ban and a £50,000 fine and been told to go on a racial awareness course, Richard, for the tweet he made about uh, Benjamin Mendy. What's your reaction? Uh, this is a rare example, I think, of the FA handling this. Uh, I think absolutely perfectly. Um, they've acknowledged that the tweet was not okay, um, and that is where the punishment comes from, the one-game ban. Um, but there is a longer ban available for such an offence, and they've chosen not to exercise the, the maximum sentence possible, um, which shows that they've considered mitigating factors such as the fact that Bernardo clearly clearly did not intend to do anything insensitive or, or, or offensive or just be racist with his tweet um, but they've acknowledged that it was wrong they have acknowledged in their mitigating factors that City have already taken action to educate him um, but they themselves have clearly because um, you know I mean the fine as well of £50,000 it's not going to change his life is it so it's you know it's a reasonable sum it's still a good portion of one week's wages but it's that's what it is, you know, he, he will deal with it. Um, but they've put massively, I think, the emphasis on education, which is the right way to go about it, because anybody is capable of making a mistake when it's made through ignorance. Um, there is not one person who is above that, no matter how much you think you are or how educated you think you are about something. People can put the foot in it. And this is evidenced by the fact that Bernardo was sharing a joke with his friend. Um, and whilst that doesn't excuse the fact that he misused social media, you know, that joke would have been different in a WhatsApp conversation with Mendy, for example. Um, Bernardo got it wrong. And, he, you know, he does have to face the music with that. But I think the FA have done everything they can to make clear that this judgment is not accusing Bernardo of being racist. They have um, almost exonerated his character, if you will. You know, they've, they've exonerated him of, of, quest of questioning his character. Um, and I think they struck a really, really good balance. And I think it's something that, without re-going over this, bearing in mind some other comments that came out from around City in defence of Bernardo at the time, uh, I think this is something that City themselves need to consider how the FA have acted on it uh, and maybe were such an incident to occur again, which you'd hope not, but that, um, they would deal with it a lot better next time. Because ed education is what changes is what changes this situation, and uh, God knows we need a lot of it at the moment. So. And the other breaking news uh, for this week, Tony, it looks like City are likely to escape uh, any sort of ban from the Champions League for uh, financial fair play or alleged financial fair play breaches. Um, it, it, it's, it's good news. It's good news. I've always um, been lined up with the official line that the records are all in order and that there's never going to be a problem. 
<laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it is good news. It's great news for City. Um, I don't think it will be so well received by everybody who perhaps would have liked to have seen City because of you know the money and all of that. But it fe- I mean, it um, felt for a while like the, like the judgment had been made before the crime was tried. It you did, know what I mean? and and City was was strong in um, in refuting it. In, in refu- and and in talking about you know has due process been followed and so on. So yeah, it's a good result, and um, yeah, just need to go on and win it now. Yeah, fingers crossed up this season. Yeah. Hey? Uh, right, so it might feel like City are a bit below <clears throat> par this season, but the truth is, par has been exceptional for Pep Guardiola's team over the last two years. 198 points, the first back-to-back title winners in a decade, and the first ever winners of all three domestic trophies in England says the bar has been significantly raised. Spanish journalist Paul Bias has had a behind-the-scenes look at the making of that City team for his new book, co-written with Lou Martin. I've been speaking to Paul to find out just what makes the manager tick. At some point, while 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 we were doing it, there was some points that probably Lou and me were like in the academy doing some interviews and and you could see Pep and his people saying, what the hell are are you doing here? Do do you want to go out from here? Yeah. Yeah. But at the end, um, we are really happy with the open doors that they let us in. Um, and I think that we ended up with a, with a product that we are happy with that because we have a lot of voices, not just uh, from Pep, but also from the people that 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 surrounds Pep and that and that help him like being a genius. That it's one of the things that we wanted to do with the book, not only talk about Pep, but with the people that work with him and with the players that he's working with. I was going to say one of the things that kind of jumped out to me was was that that Guardiola doesn't surround himself with people who just agree with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and I think that this one is one of the keys of his of, of his success. If you want to understand why a guy like Pep wins so many trophies, you have to uh, get to that point. Uh, I mean, he needs people that um, can argue with him, that that can think that his ideas are not the best. Uh, and at the end of the day, he always uh, takes the final choice and the final decision. But to have this kind of people like Dome Torrent that now is in New York, but he, he was huge in that, he, he was really helpful in that. And I know that Mikel Arteta is just uh, very similar in that terms. Um, it's really helpful to him, yeah. It's it's interesting to to see the relationship with Arteta because Arteta was a bit of an unknown quantity for Pep when he when he first arrived. He, you know, he'd never worked with him before. Yeah, well, um, I think that they knew in the Barcelona uh, academy because when Pep was the first team player, uh, Arteta was coming just 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 after him, so they knew there. But for for what we've been told, yeah, uh, every time that they met, like in a football ground, I think that they played like several times with Pep when Pep was was a Bayern and Mikel was an Arsenal player, so they played against against each other and they spoke just like after a game um, and all the conversations all the conversations were like tactical things uh, and Pep was like really surprised how insightful Mikel could be in his systems and I think that was the starting point where Pep could see that Mikel had a talent there and I think that now he is proving that how does Guardiola switch off because from I mean from reading what what you said about him he he seems to be one of the most intense people on the planet yeah uh, I'm not really sure that he actually switches off <laughs> uh, he is probably like focused 24 hours a, a day but um, I think that the way that he likes to do that is just going out with his family he loves um, going to theater going to cinema probably that well that's w- one of the reasons why he lives on the city center because he wanted to be able to do that to go to the city to just to have a world with his people um, when he has a free time I mean you you can see that he really likes to be with his people and I think that is probably his his way to to escape for a minute or two probably because in his mind he's always thinking about the next opening and all that stuff uh, just yeah that's his way to switch off a little bit how much of his success at City would you put down to his his man management ability and his ability to know what gets the best out of each one of his players individually? Obviously, uh, a, a, a huge part. I would also put a huge part to Chiki because I think he was key in that. Uh, in terms that um, with a simple look, Pep and Chiki can can know what uh, the other thing. And it was really important because when Pep arrived. Uh, City was facing like a transition from one group of players that had been successful but probably needed like a refreshment um, and I think that Chiki was part of that um, but also I mean mm, 
no one else did like 198 points in two seasons so that has to have something to do with the with with his style of management um, and I think that in my simple opinion that they are playing like a style of football that probably England had never seen before so um, you have to give credit to him for that when I mean City made no secret of the fact that they were after Guardiola in I think it was 2012 and then 2013 mm-hmm. when when Pellegrini mm-hmm. arrived um, how much of how much of it was a setback that they didn't get him back then? Uh, I don't really know. Probably Chiki and Ferran Soriano would be the, yeah would really know how to do that. But um, I think that um, they they knew that he couldn't get Pep when they wanted at first. But they always knew that they w- will, will have a chance. That at some point the, the chance will, w- would arrive, and that they had to be ready just to push the ball into the net when the chance arrived and I think that that's what they did um, they sent Pellegrini that uh, was a really good option as well because they of course won the Premier League won Cups uh, and the t- a style of football that they played I think that also helped the team just to give like some more background in this uh, passing style uh, of football playing um, but at the end of the day, uh, my feeling is that the last stop of that process was signing Pep, and they waited for that, and they got that. You look at, at the players that, that Guardiola has worked with here. I mean, you spoke to, to, to some of those players yeah. in, in writing the book. What do they say about him? All of them are very supportive, very supportive, and I would say that impressed of one um, one thing of of his intensity but the the best thing that everyone can say about Pep is that what he says in the in the in the tactical talks it just happens I, I mean at some point you 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 can see that they can uh, look a bit not uh, concerned but saying why is he telling us all that stuff is if it's probably not necessary but everything that he says uh, it ends up happening so I think that this one is probably the, the, the way how Pep wins his players because um, he studies so much the, the, the opponents and the way that he should play that's all the indications that he gave uh, the players can see that um, you, uh, they um, can take an advantage of that he is. He seems quite an emotional person, so he seems yes. quite quite linked to how City are doing. It really affects his mood. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's he's totally uh, emotional, and I'm sure that um, some of the uh, videos or, or pictures that we have all seen uh, after some games where he's very uh, expressive, probably he regrets it uh, <laughs> after a game, but he just can do nothing to hold him back well there's, there's the Nathan Redmond example but yeah, I think the, yeah, the, the yeah. one is Raheem Sterling in the, after the cup final they just won 6-0 and he's, yeah, and he's yeah, coaching yeah. Still. Yeah. that's also uh, I think that if you ask for a reason why Pep is so successful I mean that's the perfect uh, example they won 6-0 but he still feels that has to uh, go and have a talk with Sterling because he has something to improve and he scored almost a hard trick uh, in the in the FA Cup final uh, I mean most of the people would say Come on, just just let him go. Just let him enjoy the last game of the season uh, and have a drink together. But yeah, just Pepe, just like that. And I think it's his best point. I think the the other interesting one was the Spurs game uh, last season, the the Champions League defeat because he just I, I didn't go to that game. I'm just watching the TV pictures of that game. Um, he looked utterly crushed at the at the final whistle. And yet he had to pick himself up again for a game three days later. How how does he how does he deal with that sort of stuff? I mean that the best thing after the Spurs well it wasn't a defeat but the Spurs elimination in the Champions League was that in three days there was another game. I mean this um, the the feeling that we got from this uh, like technical staff and and this group of, of players is that they just love to play and that they are so used to play football. That the less time, that the more time they, they they spend without playing football, you feel that probably they they miss like some routine, something like that. And after such a tough defeat uh, in terms of emotional that the Champions League exit meant, uh, I think that um, having uh, just a league game after that was the best thing for them. Um, and and also you, you you could see at that point like some like emotional decisions that Pep took at that point. That was for example picking up Foden for for the next league game um, that probably was a way like to try to spark the team just just to 
gave him the opportunity to start and at the end well it, it paid off because he scored the winner just on Foden he's, he's talked a lot about about Foden being one of the best players he's, he's coached mm. How much? How much is that? Is is kind of like hyperbole to, to, you know, to help Foden and to and, and to encourage him. But how much of it is true? No, I would say it's true. But the thing is that um, playing, uh, in my opinion, playing as an eight or as a number ten in Pep's system is so different that that playing as a winger or playing as a striker probably because if you are a winger and you miss a dribble, not, nothing happens. But if you are a number eight or a number ten and you miss something in the Pep's ideas. Um, it affects to the whole team, and the thing is that City has like really top top players there. Uh, David Silva is probably mm, best City player in the whole history. Uh, Gundogan is uh, another really really good player that uh, Pep um, was mad about him when well not, not not mad was in love with him when he played for Dortmund. Um, so there are like a lot of good players that I think that. Pep is just trying to use them just to help for them to reach that level but he, I feel that he just wants to be as much passion as he uh, can just to try to give for them just to look for the best moment just to put him in but yeah of course um, he is aware that uh, every season for them will want just to play more and more and more and that normal process and I think that he will get that amount of minutes. And I mean, just finally, I, I've been watching Guardiola City for for well since he arrived now, and I couldn't tell you how it and why it works. So, having looked behind the scenes and got an in-depth look, can you can you explain why it works so well? It's difficult. It's difficult. But the thing is that um, I think that they are a group of people. That one of the keys of that group of players is that they are really young and really ambitious. There's you you can smell really hunger to do big things in the first team building, and probably that's the that's the key. Um, not just for the team playing good, but also for the whole club working like like in a good way and just to keep all the staff motivated and to keep the players. Uh, I mean, after two Premier Leagues, when you uh, did almost 200 points, um, just still have the hunger to um, win every single game week and fight for uh, for another third title. That would be like an amazing thing for City and for the Premier League. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Paul Byers speaking to me about Guardiola's development at City. If you'd like a copy of the book, then it's available in all bookshops and on Amazon, and you can contact Paul directly on Twitter. He's Paul Byers, that's P-O-L-B-A-L-L-U-S. The book is called Pep's City, The Making of a Super Team. Now it's time for Ask the Panel. Get your questions in for next week at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. You can uh, email us bluemoonpodcast.com and you can search for us on Instagram as well. Just search Blue Moon Podcast there. Uh, Otis has been in touch on Instagram. Nine points is a tough gap in November after two amazing seasons going for the Champions League, FA Cup and Carabao Cup. Seems like a good deal to me. Could Pep adjust his focus to the Cups? I'm always wary of what this means because what... Are we saying... I, I'm always wary that when we talk about adjusting focus, that it it somehow means not trying as much in in the competitions that you're supposedly not targeting. I suppose now more I, it means changing the priority. In So in terms of... I accept that come February or you know March and April, when if you're still in those competitions, the number of games you play ramps up. But really, there's only the... T- there's maybe six additional games where that counts because the Champions knockout rounds because I don't accept that the FA Cup has that much of an impact on the squad. It's not that many extra games. But the nature of managing the Champions League and the travelling, okay, that might have an impact on it. doesn't matter in November. You're not changing your focus now to account for the Champions League kicking back in in February. So, I mean, in short, my answer is no. I don't think Pep will change his focus unless when it comes to the very later rounds of the Champions League, if we are still in it, if we're so far out of the Champions League then, then yes, of course, he might play a weaker squad like he did when we should have beat United to win the league. He played a weaker squad in that to target the Champions League. So, okay, I'm being a little bit flippant saying, are you trying less hard in one game? I understand that you can play a preferred 11 in one game and... Rest players in others. Whilst you yeah. still, yeah, while still thinking you'll win a game, 
But I, I don't think it's time to be thinking about that. And I say that holding my hands up already and saying that I don't think we'll win the league. I think it's already um, a, too tough an expectation. But mm, no. And the, and the other thing, there, there is no evidence whatsoever in Guardiola's time at City that he doesn't go out to win the next game. So I, I think, no, it won't happen until and unless the circumstances that Richard's mentioned. So, for example, if... We're looking so far gone uh, in terms of the league. Then that's when it might change. And But that wouldn't be a case of prioritising it. It'd be more pragmatic, I think. But in short, no. A bit more of a tactical one from uh, Mike Cook. He asks, uh, are the inverted wingers stifling De Bruyne's passing this season? Sterling, Bernardo and Mares don't make the same runs behind the fullbacks, so the killer balls just aren't on as much. Ah, uh, See, I think there's, there's possibly a point in that. Um, and it, it, no doubt, now the question I've heard the question asked, it's something that I'm going to be looking out for at, at games. Um, but I think the Mares that we've seen on form this season actually is allowing for that. You think of how good he was at, oh God, which was the game where he was particularly brilliant? Everton. Yes, at Everton. He, uh, thank you. He was making those runs and he was getting those balls from De Bruyne. Um, oh. Maybe the Bernardo within that, I think, is a fair point. But I don't think Bernardo, we've already mentioned, I don't think he's shown as much quality as last season. And that, of course, no matter how good you are, if you're spraying the ball about, you need your teammates to do something with it to, to take advantage. But I just think De Bruyne has been a little bit off yeah. note the last couple of games. I think, you know, the, which was the one against Atalanta when he just thwacked it out of play for a throw-in, like, skewed the ball massively off his foot that wasn't anybody else's fault um, the fact that maybe he's looked a little bit slower in the general pace of the game isn't anybody else's fault I don't think I think he's just having a couple of off games and maybe this is a rare example where we're used to De Bruyne being a player that can pick the team up when and can produce the magic when the team aren't firing and at the risk of using language, it's a little bit too strong because, you know, let's have it right. City is still, they're, they're pretty good still. But I think at the, the last couple of games where City haven't been firing, I think it's just a rare example of De Bruyne being dragged down to the level of the team rather than being able to lift them. And I don't I don't blame any individual tactical setup for that. I think it's probably just feeling it a little bit like everybody else is. I, I would sort of go along with that. I think it's, I, I think it's hard to separate the difficulties that we've spoke about in defence and in midfield from the impact on the rest of the team. So I, I don't think it's anything other than um, that, not, not, not a weariness, but almost like um, that drag down's a bit too strong. Yeah. But, but sort of... It feels like at the moment that City aren't greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, we, we're, not, we're not quite there. And, and I think... I think I think that's right. It's a good way of doing it, and I think what you have to remember as well is, as Richard said, we're not bad. Yeah. Uh, finally, Nova Rep on Twitter asks, uh, "Why are City's results inferior to the last two seasons?" Which I think we've probably covered quite extensively on this show. Uh, but will Liverpool's luck and dominance run out enough for a title race at the end of the season? Oh, that's a good question. Now, the, the problem with, with answering that is straight away I'm going to sound like be as bitter um, as you bitter. want, but. <laughs> Um, it's difficult, having watched Liverpool last season and this season, to recall a team that, frankly, have had so many, or seemingly so many moments of good fortune. And fair enough, you make your good fortune and all of that. But if it, was, if it wasn't Pickford last year, throwing it into the net... Um, Dean Henderson this year. You know, and, you know, those fabulous 95th minute uh, penalties that Mane's sort of seemingly getting, you know, quite <laughs> fairly, I'm sure. I, I, do they deserve it? You make your own luck. Will it last forever? No, it's all going wrong in December and January. For them. I think we can play semantics with this one, right? I think it's fair to say Liverpool have a lot of luck or Liverpool have more luck than City. Where we get into the sour grapes is if you say Liverpool are a lucky team. They're not a lucky team. Liverpool are a fabulous team yeah. who fully deserve to be top of the league. And I don't like saying that, but they do. They don't lose games. And that isn't because they are lucky. But it would be fair to say that they have had some notable moments go in their favour. But if we're honest and look back in our 100-point season, the win that kick-started the 18-game winning streak bounced in off Sterling's foot in the 97th minute at Bournemouth. Without that, 
we don't know how the rest of the season unfolds. Do they even win the next game or do they start to feel, oh God, it's just last season all over again? Because that was the feeling amongst the fans during that game. Um, the last minute winner against Southampton wasn't lucky as such because it was a great goal, but it was the 97th yeah. minute and they built a season on yeah. that and then they won the next game in the last minute. And then at Crystal Palace, when they could have lost for the first time that season, Edison saves a last minute penalty. So we have to remember that Liverpool aren't the first team to feel like everything's going yeah. there, where it feels like everything's going their way. But you can also bet that they will know they won't be ashamed of the fact that they're getting these little slices of luck. They will know it and it will be adding to their feeling of invincibility because we know from that season that it does. And so I hate it and it frustrates me every time they get these last-minute winners because you, you know that they're but the, the thing is, though, but about the, the last-minute winners, yeah. though, they're a team that, I mean, they are they a fabulous going, team and they? they play until the last moment. So as a Liverpool fan at the match and as a Liverpool player, you will know that there's something always on. My final point on this as well is it would be, I always think with points like this, you always have to be wary as a City fan, or not just as a City fan, but as the team that feels wronged. You have to be wary of doing your opponent down because really, if you say that Liverpool are where they are because of luck, what are you saying about City? Do you know what I mean? Liverpool are above us because at the moment they're a fantastic yep. team. If we, team. If, if we do them down, then we're sort of... We're only doing ourselves down as well and doing last season's achievements down. We didn't beat a lucky team. We beat a very, very good team to the title last year and at the moment we're just trailing a very, very good team. Right, well, on that note, that's it for this week, and I hope it's gone some way to easing the pain of last Sunday. The bad news is that City don't get to play again for another fortnight, so they can't go out and put things right quickly. But the good news is that, international break or not, there'll be another Blue Moon podcast next week. Special thanks to my two guests, Tony Burns. Thank you, enjoyed that. And Richard Burns. Uh, a pleasure, David, thank you. If you've enjoyed the show, then please head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and a review. There's also this week's Patreon bonus show, which is available for those who back $2 a month at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast this week we're trusting the city lottery gods by drawing some random topics out of a tin taking things in like city making us cry our first city games and our favorite goalkeepers as well so go and get on that and until next week thanks for listening and goodbye that was the blue moon podcast Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.